Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, David Harrell and Travis Miller talk utility stocks, dividends, and interest rates. Plus, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski talk all things bond funds, required minimum distributions, and buckets. Let's get started. Here are David Harrell from Morningstar Investment Management and Travis Miller from Morningstar Research Services. You mentioned interest rates earlier. So I think it was on March 16th that the Fed announced a 25 basis point increase in the federal funds rate. I think that was the first rate increase we've seen in three years. Uh, But we also expect uh, multiple rate increases throughout 2022. Now, in your report, you spoke about uh, several things. One, that uh, higher interest rates can be a drag on utilities' earnings because it increased their borrowing costs. Uh, higher interest rates can also make the, the dividends, the yield of the uh, utilities less attractive to income-focused investors. Uh, on the flip side, uh, if these rate increases have their intended effect and actually tame inflation, that's, that's a positive for utilities. Yeah. So how do you see things shaking out over the next year uh, with these increasing interest rates and, and the utility sector? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, again, like I said, confluence of events here, right? <laughs> yeah. So just taken separately, inflation would be bad. Taken separately, higher interest rates would be bad. Mm-hmm. Taken separately, higher energy costs would be bad, right? So all of these things, when you come together, again, what does it mean for utilities, right? The worst of them is inflation. Okay. So if you're going to rank kind of what's the worst thing that could happen to utilities is inflation. Interest rates is an interesting dynamic because we've been for the last two decades in such a low interest rate environment, we really don't know (laughs) what happens to utilities when you have interest rates that are in the three, four, in terms of the 10-year treasury, four, five percent range. We just haven't seen that for 20 plus years. So we think that's less of a threat. higher interest rates. We're at such low interest rate levels right now. If you look over that last 20 years, you've actually had utilities increasing substantially the amount of debt on their balance sheet and capital investment, and you've had interest costs on their income statements going down. Okay. Investing more, and your costs are going down in terms of interest. Utilities are the second largest borrowers of publicly traded debt behind banks. Okay. So anything, any incremental increase in interest rates will hit the bottom line. So what you were saying earlier, inflation is the number one enemy. Okay. So if, as the Fed has suggested, rising interest rates can solve the inflation problem and bring that down to 2 or 3%, then you have a net benefit okay. for utilities. But certainly there's no good situation where you have rising interest rates, inflation, and higher energy costs all, all three. for utilities. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, David and Travis share resilient stock picks in the utilities sector. Now, so in your report, you highlighted a handful of the companies under your coverage, uh, three that you thought were somewhat um, well insulated, or at least relative to the rest of your coverage list uh, from higher inflation, and then three that seem particularly vulnerable to you right now. Can you discuss these? Yeah, so in terms of those best protected, and again, I have to say, no utilities 
okay. are well protected from inflation. This is a, mm -hmm. across the board a negative, right? Okay. But if you are looking for utilities and you want to look for some that might weather the storm, so to speak, better than others, look for utilities with constructive regulatory environments, mm -hmm. places where regulators have supported policies that allow utilities to pass through those higher costs to customers. Look for places where they have low energy costs. There's a wide range of energy costs across every state region in the U.S. Very places where energy costs are very high for various reasons, very low for various reasons. So look for utilities in places with low energy costs. Those all else equal will keep customer bills lower. And then you're also looking for, for utilities that have different types of growth programs. So there are a lot of ways utilities can invest capital. Right? They can invest maintenance. They can invest in uh, the green. So they put a lot of stuff in that bucket, right? Renewable energy, clean energy, energy efficiency. Or they can invest in large power plants that maybe natural gas or coal, maybe not as environmentally friendly. So what we're doing is looking for utilities with constructive regulation, with good projects, and I put good in terms of support for projects, and then energy costs. So three names, Dominion Energy and Turgy. Okay. Dominion Energy is in the Virginia area, so they have a very constructive and 100% renewable energy target okay. in Virginia, so a lot of political momentum to support investment. And Turgy is in the southeast, so you think about what's going on in the Southeast right now. Huge demand mm -hmm. for energy, not just from the U.S., but globally. So the Southeast complex, industrial, oil, petroleum products, a lot of electricity demand down there. Entergy is at the center of that. So, and there tends to be pretty low energy costs down okay. there. So those are the two primary ones. Okay. Uh, Wisconsin Energy, a WEC Energy Group, WEC, that's another one where there's not as many great drivers, not like Entergy and Dominion, but they do have a, an excellent regulatory construct in Wisconsin. They have relatively low energy prices and uh, some, some decent support for renewable energy. Next, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar Inc. compare individual bonds and bond funds in today's markets. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski from Morningstar. Rising interest rates have led to losses in bond funds this year, leaving some investors wondering if it's better to own individual bonds rather than bond funds today. Joining me to discuss that topic is Christine Benz. She's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Hi, Christine. Good to see you. Hi, Susan. Good to see you. So let's talk a little bit about walking through why bond fund holders can experience losses in a period of rising interest rates. Sure. So as a bond fund holder, you're basically holding a basket of individual bonds. And those bonds' values get tallied up every day. And what happens when interest rates rise is that the bond prices fall. So it's possible and indeed has happened uh, so far in 2022 where some bondholders have been ready to sell and over their holding period they've had a loss because we've seen bond prices fall. So how could the scenario play out differently for someone who owns individual bonds rather than bonds through a bond fund? Right. That's why we've been hearing more interest about holding individual bonds. And the virtue of that strategy is that if you buy a bond and the issuer is creditworthy and it's making its payments, 
you are made whole at the end of that maturity, that when your bond matures, you get your principal back. And so there isn't that slippage that sometimes bond, holders can fa- bond fund holders can face in their values. That's why we've been hearing more about investors owning individual bonds or, or laddering individual bonds, which means that you buy a series of different bonds with varying maturities. That's why there's been more interest in that strategy because of that seeming imperviousness to interest rate changes. So, Christine, you've also said, though, that if you're buying individual bonds, you might end up getting a false sense of security from that. Delve into that a little bit. Yeah, I think one thing to bear in mind is that if you own an individual bond, its value is kind of jostled around by changing interest rates, too. So if you need to sell before the bond matures, you could indeed face a loss in that scenario as well. But another thing I think about is that as individual investors, it can be difficult to amass a a sufficiently diversified portfolio where you have exposure to different parts of the bond market, different credit qualities, different maturities. As a small investor, it can be difficult to obtain adequate diversification. You sometimes hear that you need $100,000 to adequately diversify with individual bonds. Well, some smaller bondholders don't have those sorts of resources. So I think that that's an issue. Another issue is that transparency research on individual credits can be difficult to come by. Um, Those would be a couple of the the things. And then the other thing is bid-ask spreads for smaller investors. They can get gouged by trading costs as a smaller investor in the bond market, you're you're side by side with some of these really big institutional money managers who are able to obtain much better pricing on their bonds. So then at the end of the day, Christine, even if rates, you know, are going up, you know, is it still better for most investors to focus on bond funds rather than bonds? Well, I think that investors can safely delve into AAA-rated corporate bonds, uh, certainly treasury bonds, um, where you're less worried about needing to do the research. Um, But I would say anything that is broader than that, anytime you're venturing beyond those very high-quality credits, you're probably better off in a bond fund. But here's where I would say it's important to keep your expenses really, really Really low. I think bond funds can be a terrific value in that you obtain built-in diversification and professional management, but we still have really low yields today. So if you're buying a bond fund, just make sure that your costs are as low as they can be, and that will improve your take-home yield and your take-home total return. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for your perspective for bond investors. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky for Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Now the pair help investors tackle RMD time. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Affluent investors who are over age 72 love to hate their required minimum distributions. Joining me to discuss four strategies to make RMDs a little bit less of a hassle is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you. Hi, Susan. Great to see you. So let's start at the beginning with some stage setting. Why do RMDs exist and who needs to take them? This is a discussion I used to have with my mom every year toward the end of the year when we talk about why it was RMD time. The basic idea is that if you have tax deferred accounts like IRAs, like 401ks, you've enjoyed some tax benefits as you've been accumulating assets 
pre-retirement. And the idea is that once you pass that age 72 mark, you need to begin taking some money out of the accounts and paying some taxes on them. So IRAs and 401ks, traditional IRAs and 401ks are the main accounts that are subject to RMDs, but a whole host of other retirement accounts are as well. The major category of accounts that are not subject to RMDs are Roth IRAs, which is one of the key reasons why so many people are enthusiastic about accumulating assets in Roth IRAs. So now one common complaint about those folks who need to take RMDs is that they'll be forced to take a higher withdrawal rate on their investments than they might like. What's the workaround for that? Right. I would say this is one of the most common questions I get on any retirement topic. People carefully calibrate their withdrawal rates to ensure that they're sustainable, that they don't exhaust their funds prematurely. And many retirees point out, well, as I move into retirement, as I get into my mid-70s and 80s, I'm getting above my desired withdrawal rate. This is making me uncomfortable. So the key workaround there, if that's a concern for you, is that you can reinvest your required minimum distributions back into your investment portfolio. Where you can invest them really depends on your situation. If you have earned income or your spouse has earned income, you can put the money right back into a Roth IRA as long as you have enough earned income to cover that contribution amount. Many 72-year-olds are not working. They don't have earned income. So the best option for them will be to reinvest in a taxable account. And the good news is that you can really invest that taxable account quite tax efficiently by holding exchange-traded funds, by holding municipal bond funds. If you're in a high tax bracket, those are a couple of key categories that you'd want to think about in the context of that taxable account to make it nice and tax-efficient even after you've taken the RMD and reinvested it. So another common complaint, perhaps an even bigger complaint, is that you know RMDs will often force a higher tax bill for a retiree. And you say one idea to sort of help ease that is to do some planning before you're even taking your RMDs. That's right. And this is something that I've talked about with various retirement experts over the years. Maria Bruno is a big... Uh, enthusiast for this idea of the sweet spot of retirement planning, where once you've retired but aren't yet subject to RMDs, so for a lot of folks, this is sort of in the age 65 to 72 zone, that's a period when you can do a lot of tax planning to try to reduce the amount of RMDs that you'll eventually pay. So a big tool in the toolkit there would be to consider conversions, potentially a series of conversions of those traditional IRA assets to Roth that might be appropriate. And the Roth assets, as I've said earlier, would not be subject to RMDs. You might even accelerate withdrawals from tax-deferred accounts in those pre-RMD years with an eye toward reducing your balance that is subject to RMDs. And that can have a a variety of beneficial tax effects later on once you are subject to RMDs. And assuming you're taking Social Security at that time, it can reduce the tax on your Social Security benefits as well. So definitely take advantage of those early retirement years to help reduce the amount of RMDs that you'll eventually have to take. So Christine, let's talk a little bit about qualified longevity annuity contracts and how they can be used to help reduce the amount of RMDs. 
Yeah, this is a, a great tool in the toolkit for retirees, especially those who are concerned about longevity, concerned about outliving their assets. This is a type of deferred annuity that someone could buy using tax-deferred assets. And you can put uh, up to 25% of your IRA or, or $135,000, whichever is less, into the qualified longevity annuity contract. But the nice thing about the product is that because it'll begin paying you benefits, paying you income at some later date, often age 80 or 85, the amount that you've steered into the QLAC is not subject to required minimum distributions. So here's a spot to get some tax help, get some financial advice help to ensure that this makes sense in your situation. You don't want to buy a QLAC unless you have a need for it besides just reducing taxes. So make sure that it's appropriate, but it can be a, a something to consider, especially because many retirees are concerned about outliving their assets and they also want to keep a lid on the taxes that they pay from their investment accounts. Christine, lastly, you say that once RMDs do commence and you have to start taking them, charitable giving can help ease some of the pain associated with RMDs. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So the best tool in the toolkit for retirees who are charitably inclined and are subject to RMDs or about to be subject to RMDs is to consider using the qualified charitable distribution, which means that you take a portion of your IRA or your for, your IRA and you steer it to the charity of your choice or charities of your choice up to $100,000. And the benefit of the QCD is that the amount that you give to charity does not count on your income tax. And it also reduces the amount of your portfolio that, that is subject to RMDs. And if you are subject to RMDs, it's deemed to satisfy your RMDs. So it's a really great strategy. It will tend to beat on a tax basis, pulling the money from the account and writing a check to charity. So it's definitely something to investigate. Even if you're not a super large giver, if you're a more modest giver, definitely consider running your qualified charitable contributions through the IRA using the QCD. Well, Christine, thank you so much for these RMD strategies today. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Lastly, Christine and Susan show us how to customize the bucket approach based on our specific needs. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. The bucket approach to retirement portfolio planning has gotten more popular, but one size doesn't fit all when it comes to buckets. Joining me to discuss how to tailor a bucket approach to suit your own situation is Christine Benz. She's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Hi, Christine. Good to see you today. Hi, Susan. Good to see you, too. So uh, let's start with sort of a basic outline of how the bucket system works and how does it work and what are the pros and cons? Sure. First of all, I always credit Harold Davinsky, a financial planner and a professor in financial planning for really putting the bug in my ear about the bucket strategy so many years ago. And the basic idea is that you are holding cash in your portfolio to meet near-term living expenses. And then from there, you're kind of stepping out on the risk spectrum with your portfolio. And basically you're using your anticipated spending horizon to, to determine how much you would invest in each of the buckets. So in my basic bucket system, I've got two years worth of portfolio withdrawals in cash. 
I've got another five to eight years in a, basically a high quality bond portfolio. And then the funds that you might use for the years beyond that are parked in equities. So that's the basic framework. I think it's a very intuitive way of organizing a portfolio and kind of backing into a situation appropriate asset allocation mix. So I would say that's the main positive of the bucket approach. People really get it. I talk about it a lot and I can kind of see the light bulb go off. And it. I like that it takes something that's oftentimes really sort of black boxy, which is asset allocation. And I think it makes it intuitive and understandable. So that's the major benefit to bucketing in my view. In terms of the major drawback, I would say it's that it can get a little bit complicated, especially in terms of keeping the buckets maintained on an ongoing basis. So unfortunately, there's not any sort of set it and forget it bucket system. You need to keep uh, things running along. You need to keep refilling that cash bucket as you spend from it. And that entails a little bit of art and science as you rebalance and draw income distributions and everything else. And then a further complicating factor is that most people aren't just bringing a single account into retirement. They're bringing oftentimes multiple accounts with different tax characteristics. And so marrying that three-bucket system with multiple accounts can further complicate things. Now, you've uh, built and maintained several different model bucket portfolios on Morningstar.com. How do you suggest investors use those? You know, should they take them and just sort of run with it? Or how should they think about perhaps customizing that to their own situations? Yeah, I love the idea of people customizing these based on their own situations. And the way I would go about it is that I would start by thinking about my anticipated portfolio spending. And then I would look at all my non-portfolio sources of income. For a lot of us, this will be Social Security. For some people, although a shrinking share of the population, this will be a pension. So you want to sub subtract out those non-portfolio income sources. And then the amount that you're left over with is the amount that you would be spending from that portfolio annually. And then you want to spend a little bit of time stress testing that amount to make sure that it's sustainable. Uh, our team and certainly lots of other researchers have looked at what's a sustainable withdrawal rate, but you'd want to make sure that whatever you're planning to take out does uh, look sustainable over your anticipated in retirement time horizon. But then use that amount, assuming that it is sustainable, to decide how much you drop into each of those buckets. So if, for example, I determine that my portfolio spending is going to be $50,000 a year and I want to use a basic bucket structure, I would have perhaps $100,000 in cash investments. And then I would graduate on to the more aggressively positioned uh, buckets from there. But I would use my portfolio expenditure as that's kind of the key building block when I'm customizing a bucket approach for myself. Now, you say that investors should also consider their non-portfolio income sources in retirement when they're sort of looking at how they might think about or maintain their buckets. What do you mean there? Well, I mean, they should not just look at uh, how much they expect from those non-portfolio income sources, which I just talked about, but also think about the timing of those non-portfolio income sources. So one strategy we often talk about in the realm of retirement planning is the 
value of being able to delay Social Security filing. So the net effect of that for a lot of retirees who plan to use that approach is that their early years of retirement might be a little heavier in terms of their expenditures from their portfolio, and then it might lighten up when those Social Security benefits come online. So you'd want to factor in just not how much you expect from those non-portfolio income sources, but also what the timing might look like. So the net effect of that is that the complexion of your buckets, the composition of your buckets might actually change throughout your retirement time horizon. You might start out with more in the safe stuff to meet your heavier spending in the early years of retirement if you are planning to delay Social Security. And then later on, you may be able to run with less in terms of conservative holdings because your portfolio spending is going down. So I would spend a little bit of time looking at not just how your spending might change through retirement, which is important in and of itself, but also looking at how those non-portfolio income sources fit in. And then, Christine, you know, the bucket system that you've been talking about is, you know, traditionally a three-bucket system, but you say there may be a case for some people for a fourth bucket. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think this is kind of an interesting concept, Susan, and we've talked about it a little bit before as well. But the basic idea is that you're building those three buckets to sustain you through your own lifespan and through your sort of normal spending through that lifespan. But I think a fourth bucket could come in handy in a couple of instances. One would be if you do not have long-term care insurance and you're concerned about long-term care expenses later in life. It seems that potentially there could be utility in having that fourth bucket to house those long-term care costs. So you could invest it probably the most aggressively of your four buckets because you would probably tap those assets later in life. You might use um, kind of the probability and the the duration of long-term care expenses to decide how to invest that bucket. So you might have, uh, say, a couple of years worth of long-term care needs housed within that bucket number four. So I think it can have utility in that instance. It can also make sense for people who want to definitely leave money to children or grandchildren or charity, who want to make sure that they've kind of hived off those assets from their spendable assets. And there again, I think there's a strong case for investing those assets quite aggressively because those are sort of for the next generation or for your heirs. So I think there are some thoughts about, uh, some ideas for being thoughtful about having kind of a last stop bucket in addition to those other three buckets that we've already talked about. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for helping us think about how we might customize this bucket portfolio approach to ourselves. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. 
Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.